Hello, everyone, and welcome to a very special episode of The Game Maker's Notebook. Uh, my name is Robin Hunnicky, and I've actually been featured on this podcast in the past. Uh, you may have already noticed from my voice that I'm a little bit hoarse from PAX, um, but I am also not Ted Price, who is not Spider-Man, but is out on the road uh, representing his amazing new game. And uh, I'm here at Dice Europe uh, interviewing the best and the brightest and the most talented young developers on the planet, including today's guest, Kelly Wallach. Kelly Wallach is an amazing uh, developer champion. She runs the Indie Mega Booth, and she also uh, is the chairperson of the IGF, uh, which is, in in many ways, both of these things help her promote, uh, celebrate, and really expand uh, what games can be by promoting and celebrating the people that make them. So in this podcast, we have a really fantastic conversation about what it means to curate, what platforms are like, and how we can, as creators and people who design software, think more and more about the people that use our software and our services and make it more humane. I think it's very important to understand that behind every game, Game is a marketing team and a PR team that is trying to get that game up on a store. And this, this podcast in many ways is about that process. So thank you for listening and I hope you enjoy. Welcome to the Game Makers Notebook, a podcast featuring a series of in-depth one-on-one conversations between game makers providing a thoughtful, intimate perspective on the business and craft of interactive entertainment. The Game Makers Notebook is presented by the Academy of Interactive Arts and Sciences, a member-driven organization dedicated to the recognition and advancement of interactive entertainment. I'm of the opinion that it's better when people introduce themselves than be introduced because introductions can sometimes be a bit nerve-wracking. So Kelly, please tell us about yourself. Well, I will. (laughs) Um, So my name is Kelly Wallach, and I'm the CEO and founder of the Indie Mega Booth, which is a showcase for independent game developers and also a community and a network uh, where we all help each other do great things. Um, I'm also the chairperson for the Independent Games Festival, which is held each year at GDC. Um, it's been going on for about 20 years, and I've been running that for the last four years. Um, and I'm also pretty cool. Yeah, she's really great. So just full disclosure for everyone out there on the podcast listening tools, <laughs> refer, refer to those. Um, Kelly and I actually, uh, we live together part time. So I teach at UC Santa Cruz and we share a house down there in the harbor. And so Kelly and I live together. We are roommates and we are best friends. So we know each other. So we know each other very, very well. Um, and also, um, a long time ago, in a, in a galaxy far away, we started recording podcasts together, which um, which we had a theme song for. And the theme song was, right. Lady, 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 Lady Time. And then there was a, there was a ukulele. I played a ukulele yeah. poorly. To, yep. to, to, it's some, at some point, we will unleash those episodes from the vault um, where they've been sitting because we're both very, very busy, badass bitches and CEOs and, and, and ladies of boss nature. But, um, but our ability to chat today is very much informed by the fact that we are very close. And also, um, we really are passionate about games and met because of that. Um, 
we, well, it was a little bit about passion for shoes. It also, but also exactly. <laughs> there was some game stuff involved. <laughs> we also just love being girls and we love being girls together. And so it's, it's like, it's actually kind of a thing. Um, so this might sound a little strange compared to the rest of the format of the podcast, but we're going to do a little bit more back and forth, which I think is great. So, um, this is your first Dice Europe, right? It is. Yeah. How yeah. has it been for you? Um, it's been really awesome. This is actually my first time in the South of France. Mm. I was actually thinking that I was like, is it Southern France? If I don't want to like <laughs> sound really pretentious about it. It is my first time in the South of France. Um, yeah, it's been very great. It's, <laughs> it's, it's not going to be your last is yeah, what I'm hearing. Well, hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so this is my first time at Dice Europe. Um, not my first time at Dice Prime, Dice Dice Zero, Dice Regular. Dice Regular, <laughs> Dice <laughs> Vegas. Um, yeah, but this has been, yeah, it's super interesting. And like the connections and the people that I meet an event like this is really important for me because I primarily work with independent game developers. And yeah. so when I'm networking and I'm meeting people, it tends to be business development um, or developer outreach or something. And, and it's kind of like at a, at a, like, I don't want to say low level cause it makes it sound bad, but it's not the people who are kind of at the top of the chain who are making yes. the big decisions. And yeah. a lot of the work that I've been wanting to do involves a lot of like big picture, big decision things. And so coming to events like this is super important for me. Yeah, I think actually for people that don't make games or aren't in the business, um, which is, I would probably guess, is a significant membership of this podcast, like there's there's a way to think about organizations, right? Where mm -hmm. the organization is, if you think of it as a layer cake, it's very tall, has many, many layers yeah. or a building. On the ground floor of that building, that where it meets the street, that's where most of the people that a everyday average developer would would work with people yeah. that are on the ground floor. Yeah. And those people are amazing. Yes. Because they hold up the rest of the building. Yeah. <laughs> they do all the email. They do. They do all the events. You see yeah. them every show. They wear their shoes out. They wear their shoes out walking yeah. around on the floors looking for good games and they love us. They're, yeah. they're the kind like that, that person at Sony or Microsoft or Nintendo or anywhere, Google, Facebook, you name it. The person that's on the floor at a show like PAX where we just came from yeah. it, and, and working with the developers and trying to get conversations going with the people that Kelly supports in her in the mega booth those people are very hardworking people yeah um, but they don't really control a lot of the budgets and yeah. so they have all the heart but sometimes they don't really have the purse strings and so at an event like this where you're meeting people that are at executive level yeah. you can really have conversations that are much more about the long-term vision yeah. um, and actually you did a roundtable here right I did. and so tell me a little bit about that uh, so the roundtable, uh, this is my first time doing a roundtable, so I'm very excited about it. And I talked to Megan, and I'm going to revive it at the next yes. Dice. Yeah, so um, I'm pretty happy with one. it. I it was excellent. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so it was called uh, The Future of Curation. Um, and the idea around it was how, how does the way that we curate games and what is visible on platforms affect the types of audiences that we have? And how yeah. do we increase the diversity of the audiences that play games just in general? Um, to me, that seems like it's something that helps support the entire ecosystem of games, and it's actually important in the in the long run. Yeah, it expands um, yeah. the ecosystem. Yeah. Actually, that's the most important thing. Is yeah. that it brings new people to the platform. Yeah, exactly. And like, and then so, how do you curate games for these new audiences, and how do you get new audiences to be there, and how do you retain them, and how do you get them to buy more games after that? Because, yeah. um, like I said, I think that that's important for the overall ecosystem, but it's also like it keeps things interesting. Like it's it's good. It's good business to me, and it also like kind of fulfills a thing that it's I think is games. really important. And yeah, it's good games. Good games, good business, good everything. Yeah, it's a good idea, and yet somehow um, there's this gap, right? Like there in curation. Uh, like let's say you run a store. Like I have a fantasy that someday Kelly and I will run this really beautiful plants and antiques store <laughs> in Santa Cruz, um, and in that store I would be the purchaser of like say uh, furniture, jewelry 
whatever. Kelly would pick out the pots and then she'd also do like maybe blankets because she's really good with blankets. I am really good with blankets. She's really good with blankets and makeup, <laughs> any kind of creams, hand creams, perfumes, that kind All of stuff. All the face creams. But, but it would basically be like hanging out with us. It'd be like coming to our house and looking at our stuff, only we would be willing to let it go, right? Yeah. And like it would be a way for us to manifest our personalities in that space. And when you look at a game store, like if you go to the, you know, let's say you go to Steam, it doesn't mm-hmm. really feel like that. It doesn't yeah. feel handmade. Yeah. It doesn't that's feel very chosen. True. Yeah. And that was, I think that was one of the things that came up in the round table was like, yeah. well, why not? So what do you, what do you, why do you think that is the case? Ugh. I mean, some of it is like, I'm very, very much on the, like everything should be hand curated. And I know it's kind of like not really workable on a large scale. Why, and why like, do you say that? Explain um, why. I, well, I mean, for how long it takes us to go through the curation for the mega booth. So um, just to give some context, we open submissions um, about every six months. So twice a year and we get, I'd say between like 200 and 400 games per around or something, yeah. you know, kind of depending. And it's about three months of almost full-time work for Jeez. a team of five or six people to like do something like that. Because you got to play each game and then you got to yeah. research the teams and you yeah. got to like make sure that Well, the not- way that we curate. And yeah. so like, and so the way that we curate is we curate for the game, the company and the presentation. And we, so we do a, a thing where we have a small pool of uh, what are called judges and they go through in a, in a backend system. And the idea is that they rate it on these categories and it helps to float some stuff up to the top and some stuff up to the bottom. Um, and then we have a secondary group of people that we call a jury. Um, and that's primarily like the core team that goes through and takes all of this information, has also played all the games, and then we have discussions around them. Um, and so in theory, you could just like be like, oh, we're just going to discard the bottom 10%. But like we don't yeah. do that. We still talk through literally every single submission and we come through a consensus on it. And so we're looking at the game. So there's a conversation of the game, but then there's also the company part of it. And the thing is, it's very easy to curate out bad content, which we don't actually get a lot of bad, yeah, like no, of actually bad now. games. Yeah. Like people know to, if they're going to submit to the mega booth, it's a big deal. Like well, I, I've yeah. shown in the mega booth several times and I'm always like, I hope we get in. <laughs> <laughs> Jeez, I hope our game passes the bar. <laughs> um, but the, and so like one of the ways that we did that is we have, we have a bit of a paywall. So it's like, it costs money to actually submit games, yeah. which before we had that, we did actually get a higher percentage of games that just were just functionally not good. They were just clones spam. and junk and yeah. And spam basically. Um, but then it's also like expensive to show at a game like PAX. Like we don't provide all the space for free. Like it's, it's at cost of basically what it is. And then, um, we try and we have some scholarship programs and we provide equipment and we do all these things to make the pricing easier, but it's still, it's still expensive. It is. But just in general, like when people are making something, I'm also like very bleeding heart liberal kind of thing. Like (laughs) I see the good in a lot of the stuff and I see what they're trying to do. And some, a lot of the times the team have something redeeming. So it's not actually as easy to just get rid of bottom stuff, but just say like, so we get rid of the bottom 10%. And then the top 10% is like way easy. Like that's slam dunk stuff where you're just like, oh yeah, okay, whatever. Like this is it. I know, I know this game is going to have a lot of hype. People are super into it. It's a team we love working with. It'll appeal to the PAX audience, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. The problem is, is that like 90% of it is in the middle and that could go either way. Like it's actually really, really hard to have a game in the middle because it could, maybe it's good if they get mentored. Maybe it's good if it gets the right exposure. Maybe it's good if it gets play testing. Maybe it's actually like fundamentally an idea that doesn't work. Maybe the team is going to get there and they're going to totally collapse under the pressure and not know what to do with it. Or, you know, there's all these other kinds of like, you know, maybe something is going to happen that's external to anything where all of a sudden people are like, we don't like games that are in the genre anymore because of blah, blah, blah. Um, And so we spend a lot of time having discussions around that. And I think that's where the ability to be able to curate well and to curate for the audience that you want and the types of games that you want in the future. Like we were talking about the EGW curation stuff. So a lot of what we are doing is that I'm curating for 
I'm primarily interested in the community. Yeah. Like I want the games to be good and I want people to be excited about that, but I want the community to reflect what I want to see in the world and what I want to see in games in general. And so that is like way, way, way more important to me than the games. And like the games generally tend to be good and tend to get a lot of attention because they're unique and interesting because they're made by unique and interesting people because, that are yeah. trying to do bo- like yeah, positive Game developers things. are kind of the coolest people on the planet. Yeah, they are really, really it's, cool. It's a secret. Yeah. We shouldn't let everybody know because all <laughs> want to become game developers. They're amazing. I mean, that's yeah. why I work in the games industry is because yeah. I love the game developers. And so, um, but the, so the more you curate for that and the more you give positive kind of feedback, um, you know, for positive work, I think like over time we've been able to build a community where like, Everyone knows that they are supposed to be helping each other, that they're pitching into something that's bigger than themselves and that their game and their company should reflect their values and that like that will get them somewhere and that will get them noticed. Yeah. Um, and so I curate for the stuff that I want to see in the happening. World. Yeah. And that what I want to see. So happening when we in the were world. talking about this at the round table, uh, what I was saying to Kelly was as she was saying that out loud, I had this brainstorm. So like I was one of the first game jammers on the planet Earth as the first woman to participate in a game jam and helped found game jams, um, which are now like, they're like a tool for developers to, to try out ideas. And when we all first started working on them, I worked on them with a bunch of developers like Chris Hecker and John Blow and Doug Church and Ottman Binsock and all these really great people, Brian Sharp, tons and tons and tons of cool, cool programmers, like, but they were all dudes, you know, um, when we first did it, nobody released games on the internet for free. You had to know a guy who knew a guy who knew a guy to get your game pitched to potentially get it on a disc in a store physically. There yeah. was no online stores. And so curation happened at the level of meetings with people who were also talking to Walmart. Like yeah. you had to know a guy who could talk to the Walmart guy yeah. and find out if your game was going to sell at Walmart. Yeah. And it was incredibly conservative marketplace because there was very, it was, the stakes were very high. Yeah. You had to print the disc physically. You had to ship them around the world. It was very expensive to release a game. And it was like big publishers like EA and eventually Microsoft were, were, were extremely conservative in what they put their bets on because they couldn't afford to invest all the money yeah. in that distribution and then not win. Right? Well, and this came up in the second round table is that like a lot of times it seems like things are being curated or, or made or created based on past data. And you can't, you can't always predict the future From on, the past. Past, on past data. You but, know? but it became that way. And so yeah. when, when we started the Game Jam, the Indie Game Jam Zero, yeah. <laughs> which was sponsored by Intel, Kim Pallister, who's out there, if you're out there in the audience, you're amazing. Thank you for sponsoring the very first Game Jam on the planet Earth. Um, when we first worked on that, um, our goal was to make a little physics engine and make some games and put them up on the internet for free just to have a conversation about what would be the coolest game you could make with weird stuff. Mm-hmm. And um, when we did that a couple times, people started to go, oh, that's a cool idea. I'll make my own little engine or I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll write a little programming language and we can make games. And so the other thing you'll notice about what I'm talking about is at that time, Unity doesn't exist. Yeah. Unreal doesn't exist. There's, you have to roll your own game engine if you're going to make a game, which was the other reason that the industry was so conservative because you had to hire a bunch of programmers who were very smart to write the game engine. And at that time, most games were 2D, but they had started to become 3D. And 3D games were like a whole, is like a black art. No one knew how to program those <laughs> engines. So if you were somebody who had, like a lot of the people that participated in the first game jam were people who had, you know, built, you know, Ultima Underworld, which was yeah. one of the first 3D games ever made on the planet Earth. And like when you, when you were in that space, it made sense that it was hard to think about building something, making it and putting it out for free. But 
what ended up happening was we started to curate this show called the Experimental Gameplay Workshop, which still happens. It's 18 years old now oh <laughs> at GDC. <laughs> um, and in it, we show it's like 20 slots, 15 slots, and we get about 300, 250, 300 submissions. Basically, we give people five to 10 minutes to get on stage and talk about their experiment. And when we first started doing it, there was no such thing as internet stores. And the games that we showed were usually failed prototypes from large studios. And then we started to demo games like Portal. We showed Portal for the first time ever at, at EGW. Mm -hmm. We showed Katamari Damacy in the US for the first time ever at EGW. We showed uh, Guitar Hero <laughs> for the first time ever. That'll, that'll never do well. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and these were games that like, they were, they were like super weird games and people yeah. thought that they would never sell. And they all either were critically acclaimed, won awards, did really well, or all three. And yeah. so when I looked back at the curation that we had been doing in EGW, um, and I do it now with Daniel Benmergi, who is a uh, a developer in Argentina now. He's the, he's my co he's my co curator because John and and Chris Hecker got busy doing other things, <laughs> making video games. Um, when you look back at our curation strategy, it was the same thing. At yeah. the beginning, people didn't want to play or see games at EGW that weren't physics based games because yeah. we started with physics based platform games yeah. and stuff like that. But over time, I was able to show games like. Um, dysphoria, mm. you know, or limb, yeah. you know, I was able to show games like a luxurious superbia. Yeah. And like, these are games that like would not traditionally be considered games or would be considered influential, but for developers in the community, which is about a thousand people that can pack into the room and always yeah. sells out. Um, it was, I felt it was so critical for them to see people that were on the bleeding edge of research. Well, cause the thing is, is that if people see, if people see that it's the same thing as like a role model or just having somebody that you can look towards, like if you see that it's, it's possible, then it becomes more possible. So like one of the examples I was giving is like this past time we had a lot of kind of more like rom romance, interactive yeah. fiction, something, I, I don't, I don't games. know what to call those. Yeah. Love games. Yeah. Love games. And like, and we started showing that type of content like a few years ago and through people like, um, you know, primarily through the LGBTQ community that were yeah. very passionate about like these games having representation and like, feeling like they weren't getting representation. I'm like, why not? That's awesome. So we just kept showing it or showing those games. And from an outside perspective, you know, nobody knows that we only got two of those games submitted and that we yeah. put all two of them in. Right. Yeah. Um, like what they see is they see the visibility of like, oh, this is a game and I like that kind of game and maybe I can make that kind of game and I could show it on this kind of platform. And one of those games that actually won the narrative award at IGF then the following year. And I think that that inspires more people to be like, oh, this is actually realistic, you know? And so at some point, like, but that takes a while, right? Yeah. And so, you know, that's like two years, like two, three years. It's of a kind virtuous of like, cycle, but it takes yeah. time. And so I think to go back to like the original question that you were saying is like, why do the storefronts not feel that way? Is I think they're looking at past data and they're curating kind of based on AI a bit. And then the human side of the curation that they're doing, I think, is catering to the audience that they already think they have and not yeah. the audience that they want to have in the future. And that, that where I think is what it gets frustrating for me is because you're creating the circular situation where you're like, nobody, nobody will buy this content. It's like, well, maybe nobody's buying the content because you're not making the content. Or you you're know? not showing it. Yeah. I, mean, I think like, yeah. like there or are a lot, not, of yeah. Yeah, a lot of developers out there like, like, like Phenomena or like you know, Campo Santo, whatever they're, yeah. they're, they're making games in, independently, but if those games don't really line up with the values of say valve, they're yeah. not going to get showcased. Yeah. And if they do, well, then you get purchased. Yeah. I mean, and that's like, it's, yeah. it's really kind of a lottery. Well, and point. for, and for indie games, like there is that diversity of content. And so now that diversity of content is there through the developer community, through the tools, like, you know, you're saying like engine, more engines are available. So you don't have to be so technically minded to be able to create something like you don't have to go through all this, like 
know the dude who talks to the dude at Walmart to like get your game distributed or whatever. But now you have this other giant, problem. Yeah. Now you have this other problem where you have a giant amount of content and you can't actually get that content to its real audience. And like my kind of theory is that these audiences aren't on these platforms because they don't feel welcome in them because yeah. the content isn't there. Also, it looks horrible. You know, like, <laughs> it looks like Reddit. It's like everything so looks like Reddit. Time. Yeah, it's definitely not lady time. Um, and so, and then you have these ancillary things. So you have like stuff like people discovering content through like Twitch or YouTube or social media or something. And I mean, for me, like I, I don't like existing in those spaces either because they have their own kinds yeah, of problems. problems. Yeah. And so like for us, I mean, part of it is, I mean, it's a little bit of like when you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail. But yes. for me, I'm like, oh, we're going to make events that are their own standalone events that have like arts and games and music. And we're going to try and we're going to bring them to places where there isn't typically this kind of stuff being brought to them. We're going to show hey, you know, like you thought games were this, but they're actually now they're this. There's like, something else. Yeah, there's something else or something new. And these games are made by people in your community that look like you, that have similar experiences to you. It could be you, you it know. It could be you. You it could, could do you. it. Yeah, you could do it. Or you could play this game or you could discover this content or something in some way. And that kind of stuff to me, it's like it's important because I just like I philosophically think it's important to have the diversity. I also think that like technology is the language of the future and like yeah. the way to get into getting into games is kind of like the gateway drug into like bigger <laughs> technology. And like there really needs to be more diversity of people making technology because yes. it's what's driving the future of the world and politics and like literally everything. Society, so yeah. there's that part of it. But then the other part is like, it's just good business. Like it's just stupid to like leave money on the table kind of thing. Yeah. Like these whole narratives around like, you know, women don't monetize on mobile except for Kim Kardashian app made a billion dollars a second or whatever. Yeah, you know, and look it's at the like, Sims. Like that was yeah. the first game I ever worked on. We've talked about this. Yeah. Kelly is a huge Sims I fan. I am a huge How Sims much fan. money have you spent on the Sims a in your lifetime? Money. I think I've probably <laughs> spent like $500 just on like the Sims 4. You so know, there you like, go. And, I, and I love it. And like, and I want to do that. I buy a new computer every single time it comes out. I've yep. been playing it since the very first one. So it's 18 years, right? And you go, and you go onto something like, origin and there is literally no other game on that yeah, platform that I want to buy. Reach you. Yeah. And, and that's, to me, that's just stupid because I am like desperate for that kind of content. Yeah. Right. And I will spend my money on it. And like, and I want to find it because like, that's the kind of particular thing that I want to play. And I am not, that's not a niche situation, right? It was like the number one selling PC game of all time. It's like 70 some percent women. And it's still like this mysterious market or something, <laughs> which to me is just like, that can't possibly be true. Like that can't really be true. Like, <laughs> well, this, so this is, the, this is the thing. Like when, when you think about the, the, the overarching problem with stores, online stores, part of it is this algorithm aspect, which I mean, I have a degree in AI. Like I've thought about this a lot. Computers, when you program them, they manifest your bias. Like yes. you think that people, like the algorithm that watches me buy games on Steam or download them for free because I get a lot of developer keys, <laughs> thinks that I have this very bizarre taste, right? Because yeah. I'm using Steam a certain way. But if I was a customer, it would surely recognize that I play simulation games, that I like to play artistic, expressive yeah. games, walking simulators, and like kind of oddball content. Yeah. Would would it really know me? Would it really see me? Well, this me? is my thing that I was you know? saying about the Pandora, like, so Pandora, the music service, like it would do this thing where like, okay, I really like Fiona Apple. And so I listen to her stuff and it's like, you must like Tori Amos. And it's like, I don't like Tori Amos. And it's like, but they both have hair and they play piano. And it's like, that's not what I liked about them. You know, like you totally missed the mark in every single way. And I think that that's what, to me, a lot of the AI curation kind of feels like now where it's like, oh, you like X, you must like Y, but it's not taking into consideration any of the kind of nuance of yeah, what you are. Of, it's like, oh, you like JRPGs. 
so you must like this JRPG. And it's like, did you think that maybe I like this JRPG because the art style is super interesting? Or did you think that I like this JRPG because like I identify with the main character's yeah, story yeah, yeah, or something? Exactly. Cause it has you like know? a queer love story and I'm queer. Yeah, exactly. yeah, exactly. And so like, I don't know how delineated like those categories are getting. So in one of the first round tables, like somebody was talking more through like how Netflix does where they're like, here's irreverent comedies, here's dark comedies, here's, yeah. and like every time that I look for stuff on Netflix, I'm always surprised. I feel like it, it found the cult hit you know, which yeah. was like only the only thing that you would be able to get that from before was like your friends. And Netflix, I think, is one of the few that is actually able to do that. And then Spotify is the other one. But those are handmade. Yeah, like those are. all those playlists are handmade, except for the Discover Weekly, which I actually think is a super fascinating algorithm because that one that one got it right. That solved the Pandora yeah. issue where it, it's actually it's understand. Cool like yeah, it, it understands. Yeah, it understands. So it takes what you listen to the week prior um, and then it creates a new playlist for you like once a week. So on like Mondays, but it doesn't do the thing like one week. I'm like, oh, I only listen to classical music. It doesn't turn it into like classical music, you know, extravaganza. It turns it turns it into a combination of like, well, the week before you were listening to reggae and then you were listening to indie and then you were listening to jazz and classical. So now here's music that combines all of those yeah, components and it's, or something together. I think it's together. exceptional at, at, yeah. at showcasing young artists and new people, yeah. which is which is really interesting. So there's this thing. Like above the level of the algorithm, there's the people that are thinking about how to curate. But below the level of the algorithm, there's the actual UI. And like I used to use RDO. I loved it. I like RDO was RDO was a Spotify <laughs> tell, Spotify <laughs> competitor that had that had an amazing. Was it only on Zoom? <laughs> no, it was it was such a it was such a great it was a, a beautiful piece of software. I had okay. friends that worked there, so yeah. I should say that too. But like it was so great, and it, it really leveraged your friends' network. Like I have some friends, my friend Ben who lives in Amsterdam, my friend Richard lives in LA. Few friends that really love the same kind of music as me, mm -hmm. who are much more voracious about yeah. curating their own playlists, and it allowed for me to vicariously receive their value. Yeah, because it always showed me what they liked because I always listened to what they liked and added it to my playlist. Well, and so and Spotify, passive, yeah, you know, it was a yeah. passive buff. I could always buff them by listening to their playlists and like yeah. looking at what they were looking at and then it would always suggest more so it was a really virtuous cycle where if ben had found some really cool new um experimental environmental uh ambient electronic music which mm -hmm. is one of the things he loves it would just work its way into my playlist i'd be like ooh, so I this is this the thing is it works like, now so yeah whatever. spotify sort of has that but the spotify ui is horrendous it's awful it's right? really 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 awful it's yeah so it's, ugly. it's very bad Can and then agree like that spotify is just yeah. really it's trash it's it really so it's really really ugly it's like impossible to use it on a phone also while you're driving it's like i've almost crashed like 10 times <laughs> trying to just do anything on spotify it's, it's so really true. bad like it's i'm so just true. like i want to listen to amy winehouse while i'm driving and i'm just like well i might die in the process but like at least i'll get to listen to it eventually um but they do have a thing like that where you can add people but then what you do is you see a feed of what they're listening to and so Just from the, the other perspective what I want. well yeah and from the other perspective I'm like well now someone knows I listen to Amy Winehouse for five hours like <laughs> now I'm embarrassed you know like and it didn't help me discover any music because I'm just looking at somebody's thing and I was like well I don't want to listen to you know nine my morning jacket or whatever it's called like you know albums or something like that and so I think like Steam kind of has that same thing too where yeah. it's like you can follow like your friends and then I just get pop-ups like every time someone's playing Dodo which is just like <laughs> every second of every day you know and like I don't I'm not going to discover Dota through like yeah, so one of my true. friends like that the thing popping up and being example. like yeah I'm not going to discover yeah. Yeah. Dota. did you know someone's playing Dota 
like someone that you're friends with in your real life that maybe you don't have anything in common with their gaming stuff is playing Dota. It's so true. And then they have the curator pages, but like I was saying is that the curator isn't incentivized to no. to participate in the curation process. Like you don't get any cut of the sales, you don't get any kind of feedback, you can't communicate with the audience. It's this giant weird black box that's just kind of like we'll do it for the exposure or do it because you'll be cool or like people yeah. will like you on the internet or something which to <laughs> me is just like okay well whatever like yeah, that's not that, actually that helping me further free. further any of my goals and so it's like they're kind of doing this half thing where it's like some of it is algorithmic some of it is hand some of it is making other people do the hand work for you that sounded awful but <laughs> but it's like it's and, and then from a user perspective you come in and it's just it just looks like a mess. Like you're just like, how do I discover anything? So, so what you, you we we talk a lot, Kelly and I talk a lot about um, just about the the sort of issues that face us as a culture, and like we talk a lot about software and how software design is important. And I know that you you think about this a lot. Like, what are your thoughts on on this from the perspective of the UI or the way that the way that the software is made? Like, what do you what are you thinking about right now? Yeah. I mean, when I look at something like that, I basically think that it's made for a nerdy person who is cooler and more smarter than I am. Aww. You know, like that's, that's what I feel like when I look at that kind of stuff. And like, I know I'm a smart person and I guess I you would are. fall You're into right. the, the nerd culture kind of thing, but I feel put off interacting with the majority of, of UI that's related to like game platform stuff. Yeah. And so if I'm feeling that way and it's my job to, <laughs> to do this stuff, like, you know, imagine somebody coming from like an external perspective. And I think like, you know, I, I know you were at the VNA yeah, I was. exhibit yeah, thing yeah, yeah, recently. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so yeah. I talked to them like this is like an hour or a year or so ago. So one of our, one of my very good friends is the curator for yeah, that. So yeah, yeah. Marie Folson. Yeah, she's amazing. She's amazing. And she's super a, amazing. Yeah. There's a new exhibit at the Victorian Albert in London. And I gave the opening remarks at this exhibit, which features Journey, which is one of my games. And Marie has created, I think, one of the best exhibits about games. It's so contemporary yeah. and really, really delicious and lovely. I she's talked so about good. it with Mike. Yeah. She's great. So yeah. you were talking she's, with her She's about such it. a great curator. She's and like, amazing. And so, and I had, she, I had had a conversation with her and she's like, you know, I want to, I want to talk to the other people on the team about the physical design of the space. And I just would like your feedback on it. And one of the things that I was saying, I was like, if possible, don't have controllers like around it all, because there is a large portion of the population that will look at a controller and not even touch it because it's so intimidating and scary looking. And their association with it is twitchiness, like twitch control, like having to be like have this kind of hand-eye coordination that like most people just don't have and they feel intimidated by. You also have to memorize the mapping of the controller. Like I was playing the Witcher three a little while ago and I had, I mostly PC games, so I don't actually use controllers all that often. And like then a new controller, I mean, it was frustrating. It, I felt dumb yeah. you know using this thing because there's like that's 90 how i felt buttons. playing no man's sky i could not yeah. find the they, i could not find the inventory in the first yeah. version of the build for like so long that i ended up actually looking it up on a let's play yeah. and i was like i am a game designer yeah i am an actual well, and some game of the designer, buttons i was like i can't play this game some of the buttons i was like i don't even i didn't even know these buttons did this like the button isn't just a button it's also like clicks and it also goes up or it also spins or something weird you know it's like a bop it like it does all these things that i just like don't <laughs> i don't understand what it does um, and so I was like, you know, if you really want to make this accessible to a general public and people are going to be coming in who don't yeah. have games literacy at all, like 
make if the game only makes like needs two buttons make a box with two buttons and just yeah. make the buttons really big and really easy to understand because i think there's this really like there's this like kind of scary physical barrier to entry thing yeah. and so i think you know you take it another step further further and then you're going onto a platform you have to download this client and then you have to look at the thing and then it's like the text is what the font size is like four i mean and the font size is super on tiny the black background yeah and, and a lot like, of yeah and a lot ugh. of stuff is designed like that and it doesn't look clean it doesn't look minimalistic it looks it looks confusing and gatekeepy yeah. is what most of most of the UI and stuff looks like to me. And so like or worse, you you go to go to the store and you have to download an update. Oh yeah. To get to the <laughs> don't store. Don't even get me started. You know, and, and you're just like you're just like it, like yeah. it's like it's 7:30, I worked a full day. Yeah. I opened a bottle of wine. I I heard about my friend's game. I'm going to go to the store and I'm yeah. going to download it and I turn on the console and, it and takes then an like, hour and a half. Yeah. Oh my god, I could do an entire load of laundry and then you're just I'm asleep. Like I've yeah. had a half a glass of wine. Yeah, you almost have to game every yeah, you almost have to game like every single day for it to be at a usable point. And yeah. like for me like I'll pl- like you know, I'm saying I play The Sims a lot, but like I won't play it for like 6 months and then yeah. I'll play it for a week straight, you know, and I'll stay up all night and I'll do it. But then, so the amount of updates and the amount of all the stuff that has to happen for me to get to, like, I start it in the afternoon when I know that that evening I want to play something. That's, and that's a really, a that's giant a really good point. Yeah. The, 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 the model and the UI design on the stores assumes that you are a regular repeat yeah. customer yeah. and that you are like a taku in the sense that you yeah. really want to be there. It does not assume that you're a new user and it does not assume yeah. that you're you're there to explore. It, it assumes, it assumes that you're there that you're, to find yeah. a thing. It assumes that you're building your life around games and yeah. around the active gaming and the, and gaming culture. And Which is fine. Like, it's totally it's fine. fine. But yeah. like not everybody, like my mom's not that customer. Well, and I mean, I'm not always that customer. I'm not right? either. Like, and, yeah. and I think that there are a lot of people who are not that customer. And so I think that the UI and the curation and all this stuff reflects that audience, right? Yeah. And so this is kind of a, going back around to the curation stuff is like you are creating that audience over and over and over again because they're the only audience who can understand and feel welcome into that situation. And so you're turning away giant amounts of potential customers, you know, for reasons that could be easily solved by just better design or, you know, yeah. thinking it through or whatever. And so like if, if I had my own magical platform where like it wasn't like that, like it would look like an editorial layout to a magazine or something like it would be visually beautiful. Yeah. Like why, why are these visually beautiful games crammed into these hideous systems? You know, like <laughs> it reminds me a lot of like when I used to work in science stuff before this and like the software design for analytical equipment is, is awful. horrendous because three people understand how it works and they do not care about what it looks like. And everything is so specialized that like for them to make it easy for you to figure out how to analyze this one thing doesn't make any sense because no. everybody is literally using it for something different. And so like those are hideous and they're really hard to understand. But I'm like, that's okay because I am an analytical chemist. You know, like <laughs> yeah. I went to fucking college to be able to like understand how the software is going to work. Exactly. You know? I'm looking at the yeah. particulate matter of this very, very small Yeah, thing. exactly. And like, yeah. and maybe it doesn't need to be beautiful and you visualize the data later, but that's like your whole job. Like that's what you're doing. And so, you know, it's like all these systems have been created for people to discover this beautiful content and it's crammed into this ugly box you know and i mean even spotify is kind of the same way i mean yeah. netflix is getting a little better with it you know it's kind of netflix pretty and actually, flowy i have and to like, say we've, we've yeah. given them props on this podcast yeah. twice like they're yeah. doing they're doing the right thing yeah so what do you think makes a ui more humane or like what is it like what is netflix doing like you were saying that you yeah. listened to some ted talks about this yeah so one of my favorite podcasts is the ted radio hour yeah and when i say my favorite podcast it's the only podcast i listen to <laughs> but, and it's amazing it's an npr podcast and what they do is they take like three or four um, TED Talks that seem like they are from kind of disparate, you know, the topics, and then they kind of weave a common thread through them. So like one of the, 
a good example is there's one that's called Solving for X, um, which is about math. And they do one with uh, Randall Monroe, who writes the XKCD comics. And so he talks, yeah, so he talks about like, you know, how much of a force does it take to get Yoda to get the, you know, spaceship out of the swamp (laughs) or whatever, you know, and like people solving for math for that. And then they have a jazz musician who talks about that he was like living next door to a mathematician who heard him playing something or playing a beat and was like, oh, do you know that's a da 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 And so he like learned about math and then like integrated that into like his jazz music. And so it, it takes stuff like that, which I'm very into is like pulling all of these things from all these different kinds of places. Um, and so one of the the podcasts that I was listening to was about like humane or one of the topics was about like humane design um, around technology. And, and one of the big points that I think was was interesting but doesn't kind of relate to this is that like if you're going to create a software that a billion people are going to use, yeah. are why do you have it set that it makes a noise and a thing pops up every single time that something happens? Like every single time that you get an email, if you actually cared about the human being on the other end of this so of this technology, you wouldn't design it like that. You would design it so that like, you know, maybe they get notified once a day after dinner or, you know, maybe the colors aren't so vivid. So you're not looking at it, but like all the time or that you're not overstimulated when you're seeing it. But the thing is, is that these designs aren't designed to care about you, the human being. They're designed to care t- about you engaging in it over and well, over again. To sell ads. Yeah. To, to well, carry ads to you. Yeah. To your eyeballs. And that's the thing is to get your attention. And so it's like vying for your attention and the attention is what the advertisers want. And so I think, you know, a lot of the design around like the platforms and stuff like that, that I'm, you know, I'm kind of thinking of is that they're not humane in the sense that they're like, they are either meant to be kind of addictive or they're meant to be overwhelming or they're meant to be just pushing content out to you or something, or it's just, I don't know. I don't want to say it's like lazy development, but it's kind of the, the, you know, analytical software issue where it's like, they're thinking of it as like, oh, well, who cares because the content is there? Like, who cares what it looks like? Like, to me, it feels like a very geeky well, programmery thing yeah, to do. I, well, it's actually, someone said this in the, in the round table, it's the money is coming in anyway. Yeah, like, so the money is already yeah. coming in. Like, we already know who's going to spend yeah. money. And they're spending money right now. So yeah. why should we innovate? Why should we yeah. try it different? Yeah, like, why should we why, change it? And why, why should, should we, we make it different? It? Like, because change is, change is scary. Yeah. So, you know, it's for me, like, I, this is, it's my first Dice Europe as well. Um, I haven't come to this show before. And on the way here, I stopped at the V&A and I gave the opening remarks and and had the, the opportunity really to walk through the exhibit alone before it was open and just spend hours oh, in it, cool. which was, it was lovely. It was really lovely. And I, I can't say enough, if you can get there before September of next year, go to London, go to the V&A, see this exhibit. But like, I also stopped off in Amsterdam to hang out with my friend Angie, who runs Gorilla, and to give a talk there. And um, I went to Gorilla right after Journey shipped and gave a talk, a postmortem there about Journey, and then talked with them about Horizon Zero Dawn before they had pitched it internally to Sony. Mm-hmm. So it was when JB and them were still coming up with a concept for it. And I was just like, yes, yes, make this game. Also, <laughs> she's a redhead badass, so am I. <laughs> um, but I, I went back, and so it's been about five years since I was there, to give a talk. And I was talking about my new project, which is I'm here at DICE doing business development and pitching my game, which, you know, it's what you do. And um, a lot of what my talk was about was about the reason that the reason that we need to be doing things in games from the development side, which is the side that I'm on, not the distribution side and not the marketing and PR side, but the development side, is that we need to be pushing the medium forward. Mm-hmm. Like we need to be trying to figure out ways for games to impact people in a positive way. And, you know, I I really love the fact that games are so diverse now. Yeah. That the VNA exhibit, and I said this when I was giving my talk at Gorilla, there is so much awesome stuff happening in games mm-hmm. right now. But I also said, if you're making a game, 
where there's a singular character who solves all the world's problems and is the hero, you're sending the wrong message because that's not the message that's going to save the planet Earth. Like we need to work together. Well, and this is the like, you know, the kind of all politics is local thing that I talk about a lot. It's like the thing is, is that when you see a really big global problem and especially because we're getting such a high volume of information in all the time and it's very high definition, it's like you see that and you as an individual person are literally powerless to do anything about it. So you're being you're having all this. Yeah, you're having all this information dumped on you about how bad things are and then you have no way to exert any kind of like change or control or power. So you feel powerless, you feel out of control and you feel like things are spiraling out and around you. And then you buy this game that tells you well, that you're the hero of the universe, yeah. right? It makes you feel better. Well, and the thing is, is like, and you know, the way that you actually solve those big, giant, scary problems is that you start on a very small scale and you start affecting your local communities and the, and the people that are in your immediate vicinity. And then that starts to kind of like propagate upwards. And so the idea of all politics being local is you affect all of your local elections because then those local elections go national, those national elections go global, and then the global changes are the ones that you implement. Um, and so, yeah, so the idea that like you don't need anybody, you don't need community, you don't need this stuff or whatever, like, yeah, I agree with you. Like that's not, it feels, but the thing is it feels powerful and it feels good. Did I ever tell you about that um, gaming type diagram that I did? No, no, no. Oh my no, God. No. I, I forget what the name of it is, but it's like, it makes one of those diagrams that kind of looks like a spider web. And, oh yeah, yeah. yeah and I you answer, yeah. So yeah. you answer all these questions, then it gives you like a gamer profile type. Notes. Yeah. And like one of the things, you know, it asks you like, yeah, hey, how powerful do you want to feel? Do you want to do this? Da, 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 da. I've, I want to feel literally zero excitement. I don't <laughs> care about power. All I want to do is systems test. Systems like test. I am such a, like, it's like a point in one giant direction. And it's so funny because I look at a lot of the games that are being made and like, I don't have a power fantasy. Like I don't want to feel super powerful. Like I want to build and create and like play and like mess around with systems. And I feel powerful in the sense that I can micromanage and like control like what's going on in the situation or something. But the idea of like, yeah, like kind of like exerting my power through this like imaginary character that's going around and just destroying things to me feels very like adolescent and like foreign to me. Like it doesn't really make any sense. I, this is something that I picked up at the show just from talking with people. I think it's actually also old. Like, yeah. <laughs> I don't, I think my, my, my yeah. niece who I love very, very much, um, has been playing Fortnite recently. Um, she's not interested in that fantasy either. She's interested in influence and supporting yeah. other friends and community and being online and, and engagement and all the things that people talk about, all those watchwords. She's not interested in being a singular character going through the world crushing like that well, is, and the, yeah. it's just it's actually just not appealing to her and I, yeah. I have another another sort of similarly aged girl in my life who was playing Tomb Raider in front of me once and she's playing it and then the cutscene comes and she looks at her phone to check in with her boyfriend <laughs> she's checking with her boyfriend da, 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 the cutscene's done she looks up and she's like oh what, what am I supposed to do? <laughs> like, what happens now? I was like, oh, they just told you. Yeah. And you can't go back because yeah. you'd have to scum save and like reload your game. And well, the thing I don't know. Like, yeah, you just, yeah. I just, in that moment, I just felt like, oh, wow, we really have to change the way we make games. Well, and so the thing that's interesting with Fortnite is like I spent a bunch of time at the Epic offices and talking to folks who were on the team. And like, you know, I didn't, I hadn't played it really because it's not the kind of game that I play. And so I was like curious and learning a lot about it. And the thing is, it's like, there's a lot of comedy in it. You know, you're like on a party, you're on a party bus going to this thing. Like nobody's actually kind of really like dying. You know, there's dances, all this other sort of stuff. And so it's like cartoonish. It's funny. It's semi-collaborative in some way. You know, you all start off together, even though at the end, you know, there can only be one kind of thing. Um, But and then the way that it monetizes is just through customization and not through, you know, shitty microtransaction things or trying to get you to gamble or get stuck in the game or whatever like that. 
And so, you know, I, I talk to people who are outside the games industry and they're, they're like, you know, aren't you worried about kids playing Fortnite and it's addictive and, you know, in some ways, like I, I am and I'm not, but I'm also like, that's a parenting issue. I kind of feel yes, like, well, yeah, one of my thing. friends is a teacher and she's like, they come in tired because they were up till three in the morning playing video games. And I'm like, oh my God, really? Like, I was not allowed <laughs> to do that. Like, why? <laughs> I feel like that's less of a video game issue and more of a, you know, a something else issue. But, you know, like, and that game is doing super, super well. Right. And it's kind of like bucking a lot of these, like, yeah, these ideas of like what it's supposed to be like and the gritty reboot and this is the thing like the sims is the same for me like yeah. i i played the sims so much in college that i really worried about my grades like you know <laughs> and like no one was there to watch me if the sims had been playable in high school i would have totally well so that, done that it. was the one game as you i was know? like i was realizing as i was saying that i would sneak downstairs and play it till three in the morning exactly so, was, so this is the thing it's, anyways it's, there yeah. but there is a thing yeah, yeah. where there is a thing where like this kind of content for me like Something like The Sims, which shows you a series of systems and allows you to participate in the systems and edit them and see what happens, mm -hmm. is really educational. It's yeah. a learning tool. And something like Fortnite that allows you to go with a bunch of friends and like experience the system and have, have a good time and specialize. So like, I'm going to be the builder. I'm going to be the one that collects. Yeah. I'm going to be the one that does all the dance stuff. I'm gonna, like those kinds of experiences, what I would call creative games, mm -hmm are so rich and they can be cross-platform, they can be streamed, they can be played, they yeah. can be watched, you know, like it's it's a very rich opportunity yeah. for games right now. Well, and then I think the people who are making it also understand that and understand the audience well enough that the way that they interact with them is just so funny. Like listening to the stuff like little Easter eggs and things that they put in the game, like they really know and care and love about their community and the community also feels the same way back, yeah. you know, so it doesn't feel so it's more like, like one-sided. To me, yeah. it's more like a rock show, like a rock band performing for an audience yeah. and having a following like The Dead or Fish or something yeah. like that than it is like... I love the idea of Fortnite being a jam band. It, it's They're just, just like, all right, is. we're going to play this song for 45 hours and like <laughs> fuck yeah <laughs> this, this is kind of the idea is that like games are turning into service they're turning into performance they're turning into engagement like my next game like I'm really thinking a lot about how can my team perform this game yeah. with the community how yeah. can we connect with them and spend time with them because we just like them and they yeah. like us and like if you make a game for a platform and you don't have access to who bought it yeah. then effectively you've given your rights away to communicate with that community. Yeah. And like, I've learned that the hard way yeah. by releasing games that people love, but the only time I ever hear from them is when I go to a show. Yeah. When, you know, people ask me well, to, and that's what, like, to do autographs. Yeah. Can you sign my journey? And what the VNA people were asking me to sign yeah. their journey, journey cases. Yeah. Well, and that's what like the whole, I mean, you had given me the idea around like, you should collect up the audience for the people who come to the mega booth. And so that the developers can have access to that community. And I think that's genius. Like that yeah. was one of those like giant light bulb things for me where I was like, holy shit, that's right. And like, and us being able to collect up that audience. So first off, if we collect it up at the shows that we do, like something like PAX or GDC, like those are our super fans, right? Yeah. And so there's the whole concept of the super fan. Like you only need a thousand super fans or 10,000 super fans or whatever. Um, and those people, you know, advocate for you and they're the people who buy all of your stuff and da, da, da. So it's like, so we have our core super fans and then through these standalone events and through other stuff that we do is we collect up those audiences and then we communicate out to them to say, Hey, this game is coming out. This game is coming out. This game is coming out. And from our perspective, you know, then we can put up like something like affiliate links or work out partnerships with platforms that we want to work with or any of the sort of stuff so that we can start to get some sort of like revenue through that curation yeah, because so right now there is to do it. Yeah. yeah right now there's no revenue for curators at all like it's still this thing where it's like it's it's incredibly incredibly important and basically everybody is like why would i pay you for that 
And this is the thing, like when I was talking about this at the beginning of the show, like this idea that we would have the store and it would be really cool and cozy and it would have all of our stuff in it that we love. Like when you came into it, you would feel like you were getting something really, really personal. And yeah. it, I think it would feel nice. And we would get like, ugh, you know, some small commission on whatever yeah. we purchase. Like you buy it at retail you or at wholesale, you sell it at retail and then you put it on sale and eventually maybe you make 10%, 15% margin on everything you sell. Most online game stores make 70 or 30% on every sale. So I'm only going to get 70% back for everything I sell yeah. on the store. And then you store. add a publisher on top of and that. And then the publisher is also, yeah. I have to pay them back. Yeah. And so it ends up being like a pretty intimidating business model. It'd probably be better for us to just start a store. Why are we in the games industry? <laughs> <laughs> I don't Why? know. Let's go buy plants. Let's go buy plants and stuff. Well, that's what blankets. I saw. Um, was it Caro Caro Benito at PAX? Did I tell you about this? And at one point, the girl's dancing around, like just skipping around, and she has like a, a stuffed flamingo glitter thing on her head. And I yeah. was like, why am I not doing this? Like, <laughs> what am I doing with my life? I could be that. I could be dancing around on the stage with a flamingo on my head. I could be. To I could totally be that. So, so uh, you know, when we when we talk about these issues, Kelly and I go back and forth about this stuff, like we have today, all the time. And there's a point where you sort of. You kind of feel like, well, these are a lot of big problems, like the communication problem that we face as a society or the ways in which content is marketed and channeled to people that excludes certain tastes yeah. or styles. Like if you're a black woman and you want like really great hair products, like you're not going to find those by like flipping through Bizarre Magazine. Yeah. You know, you're going to have to go to a specific place on the internet or a specific store in your neighborhood to find those things. Mm -hmm. And like, this is something that has been true forever. Like there has always been exclusionary marketing and exclusionary yeah. taste making television really when it died, you know, mm -hmm. there was a lot oh, wait, of you mean scrambling. It's, it's not still the scrambling still the for, yeah, for, for how do we, how do we taste make? Like, yeah. how do I get people to buy Tide Pods? Well, it turns out, you know, everyone knows about Tide Pods now. <laughs> <laughs> But, you know, this yeah. is the kind of thing like this is these are big, big issues. But when we talk about them, we also try to really think about them from the perspective of caring and like, OK, well, what can we do to make it better? I've said this before many times, like if you're on stage complaining about how everything sucks and, you know, you don't yeah. come with a good idea. Um, and Mike actually said this in the podcast that we recorded earlier today. He said, you know, it's you say, I think this is a problem. I propose this as a solution. How do you think about that? So yeah. like like in your mind, like, what would you like to see happen right now? Like, what do you think is something that you think is a concrete change that could happen like right now? I mean, I, I really, really strongly feel about like UI redesign, I think would be really good. I yeah. think promoting and like you had discussed this a little bit, like having the platforms invest in the type of content that will attract and retain and create the type of audience that will diversify, that will yeah, that will yeah. like actually grow and expand, I think is going to be like incredibly important. I would really, really love for developers to be able to have access to their actual, like to their audiences on these platforms and to understand the, and the know dream, that know? information because yeah. I think that that's like, that's incredibly important for like just a wide variety of reasons, but it's also holding a lot of stuff back. It's like people clutching onto things that are just, it's going to slip away at some point, right? Like every, like you can directly, you can directly communicate with your audience in a lot of different ways right now. And like, platforms holding on to me like holding on to it for me feels like 
it's like a, a death grip, you know? Yeah, it really is a death grip. It, yeah. w- what she sort of means is that like I can go on a YouTube channel, for example, that phenomenon starts and just once a week I can release a video. People will subscribe to the video and I say, hey, just at the end of the thing, you're like, hey, sign up for our mailing list. I would probably have more reach doing that. If I had the time to do something like that, yeah. I have more reach than I ever would by working with a platform holder because the platform holder is going to keep the, the emails to themselves. Yes. I mean, and it would also be really nice to have game stuff kind of treated in some way, like to have something that's like arts fundings or, you know, yeah. have, have something along the lines of like, uh, like a patron of the art style thing. Cause I think that there's a lot of content that has like cultural value to being made and it's not really funded through anything. Like even in Europe where there's like some like games and arts fundings and stuff, uh, Asia has a little bit more specific games funding. It's normally like snuck in yeah. around like film or like digital media or something kind of like weird that's not like specifically for games or for whatever we want to call it, like games are becoming. And so I think that there's a lot of like really interesting, cool projects that can basically only be made by rich people right now, yeah. which is like not kind of the way that you want to have like arts and stuff. No, you want to, de- up in the you want to democratize the, the content and you want yeah. to democratize the voices that can, yeah. can, that can speak in that space. Yeah. So then, you know, the other thing that we always try to do is we try to end these kinds of conversations with something that's like, positive yes so like what's one good thing that you picked up this week at dice that's like really encouraging you and like making you excited um so i think that actually the round tables discussions were just yeah it was really heartwarming i guess yeah. to hear what people like how passionate people are about it and the ways that they want to try and solve it you know going forward and also the conversations that i was able to have afterwards that was really kind of like validating i think for me and i i liked that I went into it with like how we had discussed as like a topic that I want to hear other people's perspective on and I want to understand more about. And so hearing it, I don't get many opportunities to hear that kind of stuff from people who are actually working at like major platforms and then also indie developers and then also like mid-level developers and stuff as well too. So it was like a lot of perspectives that I don't get to to hear like hear from often because, you know, I can kind of make up and extrapolate why I think a platform is doing a certain thing. But then if you hear the actual reasons on like what are the issues that they're really facing and yeah. how are they trying to solve it and like what are they working towards? I think that that humanizes a lot of like what are those decisions being made? So I, I got a lot out of that. I found that. Yeah, that, that's that really fantastic. I, I was going to say that for me. I realized that there are some women here this year, you know, uh, you're here, I'm here, uh, Chelsea's here uh, from Iron Galaxy. We have um, Sabella's here uh, from 47, Megan, obviously, you know, she runs the show. Um, There are some really kick-ass women here. There are. And I think that a few years ago, you would go to a dice and you could be the only woman in the room Mm -hmm. and that's changing. So that was really great for me. Like to feel like, yeah, you know, at some level, no system changes until the people that control the means of production and the financing yeah. for that system are willing to change. Yeah. And that diversity is the same thing. So the yeah. more diversity there is in the room at something like Dice Europe, yeah. the better off we are, I think, in terms of democratizing, diversifying, and expanding the appeal of our medium. And so I really think this has been a real it's a breakthrough show for me in that in that way. So Oh, that's amazing. Yeah, cheers to everyone that, yeah. that puts on the show. Um, obviously, uh, we're really sad that Ted Price couldn't be here. <laughs> but the other thing I was going to say is I really enjoyed doing these podcasts. Like, it's really fun interviewing friends and actually interviewing people I hadn't met before and really getting to know them and understanding the intricacies of their work and their mission. And I just wanted to say I really appreciate you for what you do. And I think what you're doing is really on, on it's on the right track, Kelly. Uh, you're, you're a badass bitch. Oh, thank you, Robin. Yeah, I was, when they were like, Robin's going to host it, I was like, that would be amazing. <laughs> yeah, 
<laughs> we should bring back lady time. Right. So, okay. So is yeah. there anything that you can boost, uh, that's like your, your cool shit? Like what, what should people know about the mega booth? Like when's the next time they can go to the uh, mega booth? Yeah. Anything like what's, what's, is there anything you can announce? Yeah. So, um, so if you want to find out more about what we do, you can go to indiemegabooth.com uh, and sign up for our mailing list. We're also at indiemegabooth on pretty much everything. We're on Twitter, yeah. Facebook, Instagram, Discord. Um, we're around on lots of bunch of different things. So come and find us there and find out more about indie game stuff. Um, we also had just finished up PAX West. We're going to be opening up submissions for PAX East and GDC showcases probably oh, yeah. in um in the next couple of weeks. And then uh, we have a really exciting announcement that we're going to be making about a show that we'll be doing in early November. Um, and that'll be coming up soon as well, too. So, yeah. Um, and if you want to find me personally, I'm at Kelly Wallach. Um, and I'm pretty much terrified of social media. So I don't <laughs> post on there very often. But <laughs> come and find me anyways. <laughs> And so, yes, as I said before, um, Luna is going to be available on PlayStation and PSVR coming this uh, Christmas, actually, before Christmas. So that's great. Well, Tom will be coming out on the PlayStation and some other platforms, possibly um, PC as well, uh, in in uh, in an imminent time frame. So very soon. No, no announcement yet. But keep an eye on what Tom and Luna. You can always follow me at Hanukkah on Twitter or uh, at Phenomena. Uh, which is the company's uh, tweet stream. And of course, obviously, www.phenomena.com. So thank you so much for taking the time to spend with us today, Kelly. You're fantastic, and I wish you You're all great. the best. Aww. Have a great have a great uh, dice, and I'll see you on our vacation in yes. two weeks. No, oh my God, in yeah, two like, days. Like, yeah, I was going to say, <laughs> better not be two weeks from now. <laughs> Thanks so much. All right, bye. Bye. Thank you for joining us for the Game Maker's Notebook. For more information on the Academy of Interactive Arts and Sciences, our podcasts, and our other initiatives, please visit www.interactive.org.